0: All right so uh, it is October 10th
1: 2012 our message this evening is called assembly line and um, you know I'm gonna confess to you up front I'm gonna preach mostly out of my heart I don't have all this put together wonderfully it's just something that has been on my mind we've been talking about the baptism in the Holy Ghost we've been talking about uh, heavenly waters coming out of earthly wells and how the Spirit of God becomes in us something that wells up to salvation And it just occurred to me that a major stumbling block in this area is that we have viewed salvation as a series of steps and so I wanted to address that tonight but let me start by telling you in the industrial industrial revolution somewhere between 1750 1850 the world as we know it began to change right there were more innovation more uh, invention more change on a national and global scale than in all the centuries before it and it was because Oh, we started to look at mass manufacturing, right? And this is in our DNA. It's in our blood at this point. We've grown up with centuries around this. Our most famous example was Henry Ford. And somewhere around 1905 to 1915, he really kind of perfected this process. To give you an idea, during a time period where most Americans could not afford a car, in 1908, a Model T cost $825. By 1912, this is four years later, what happens to cars in four years? Is a a Cadillac more expensive in 2012 than it was in 2008? It's, It's more expensive. Inflation, always a Cadillac costs more as time goes by. Well, in 1912, the price had dropped to $575. He found a way to make it cheaper and affordable for the masses. And now, you know, all of America has not just one car, but a couple, right? Whether we need them or not. And there were some principles that he put in place for this. Principles that may work great in the business world, but they are a lousy recipe for church. The first one is he simplified jobs. It required far less skill. You didn't have to pay people as much. You could have one guy who screwed on one bolt, one nut, all day long, every day. He put the jobs in a sequential order. In other words, in steps. This meant you had less responsibility. You didn't have to know anymore how to put together four or five things on a car. You had to know how to screw on one bolt. The third thing that he did was he made a uniform product no longer could you get 15 different options on a car because it was the work of an artist but you had one product hence model t you know when we think about that he produced something and what he produced was a 31 percent decrease in cost i'd like to talk to you for a minute about salvation and some of those processes is that fair can I relate one to the other without you just laughing that it's carnal? It's, for whatever reason, Jesus used parables that were in everybody's daily life. He talked about a man sowing seed. He he talked about the kingdom of God like being like the process of making bread. Well, probably not very many of you are familiar with those agricultural principles in the way that you are an automobile that you drove here tonight in. The salvation, as it was taught in our country for hundreds of years, came through fiery preachers like Charles Finney. Anybody heard of him? Right. They call him the father of the modern uh, altar call. The father of the altar call because at a time period where people sat in their seats and were supposed to be moved in their hearts, he demanded a response from the people. He preached in a way that expected the people to do something. But one of his more famous quotes goes like this, never tell a sinner anything or direct him to do anything, that will stop him short of absolute submission to God. You like that Zeke? You wrote a book on the subject, right? Absolute submission to God was the goal. As time goes on, he and then later men like D.L. Moody, they developed a process. When they preached, they wanted a response and the response was not simply walking to the front to an altar. The response was that you met with the pastors and the church leaders after church to evaluate where your heart was to evaluate what the direction of your life was and talk about needed changes and pray that God would bless you with the grace to carry on in a new direction. They called them inquiry rooms. These guys were coming on the heels of somebody named Jonathan Edwards. If you studied American literature, you had to have studied him in the Great Awakening. Maybe his famous sermon was called Sinners in the Hands of Angry God," of an Angry God in 1741. And Edwards taught a principle now. I don't agree with everything that Edward said, but I want you to get this He's describing a relationship and he said every man's walk with God Begins with an awareness that he's eternally lost. This is the starting place that you are separated from an eternity with God He moved on to say most people then in their own strength attempt to stop sinning anybody been there? Right? I I tried this. I did push-ups every time I said a curse word. I could do hundreds of push-ups and could not stop cursing. That ultimately led them to a realization they couldn't save themselves. No matter what happened, no matter how hard they tried, how good they tried to be, only God could save them. And here's maybe an important one. He didn't have to. How about that? He taught that God did not have to save everyone. It was His desire, but it was not forced on anybody. Jonathan Edwards then said, there's a conviction that falls upon a man. And as this conviction comes, he realized God is right in punishing him. He deserves it. And when you think about modern salvation, when you think about the way people describe it, you usually hear that somebody made a decision to follow Jesus. You usually hear that their life wasn't going very well, and they decided to try a new way. That's really different than having come under a a Holy Ghost conviction that brought you to a place that you were an utter failure, right? In fact, a lot of times testimonies go a little bit like this. You know, I was a pretty good old boy, but then I decided to follow Jesus. I'm not sure that that is biblical in any way, shape, or form, right? Now, I'm not sure it's genuine conversion. The last thing that he said was something that we've been talking about a lot. Then we're going to get into the Word. He said there would be an awakening in their spirit. He called it a, a religious affection, a drawing near to everything that's God. The way one man in our congregation described it was for the first time when I had nothing else to do, what I longed to do was to pray. It's a, it's a drawing of, like John 6, speaks about the Spirit of the Father is drawing you to Jesus. And then as this begins to happen, change starts to occur in your life, change that you could never have brought about by yourself. This is a relationship, not... An assembly line as we talk about this there was one thing that I had hoped to be able to show you I've been accused here a couple times more than once in the last 20 years of not being very favorable towards some of the denominational churches can you nod your head if you could uh, have that idea towards me yeah uh, maybe even from time to time I've called them out by name maybe even pastors in the cities that I've lived in uh, I get that that's not popular I get that I will never win friends and influence people with that. But tonight I want to do something that was really an extraordinary step for me. I wanted to show you a man who graduated from uh, Southwestern Baptist University, right? Uh, Nobody's cheering there, but in any case, Southwestern is is a Baptist university. He he was a missionary for 10 years on the field, mostly in South America, and has since stayed within the Baptist denomination, and he's a hero of mine. Does that surprise you? He's a hero, but I want you to hear what he says about decisionism. See, if I'm going to be cast as the critic of everything Baptist, I'd like you to hear a Baptist voice who is saying essentially the same thing that we are. So, Joy's going to play that now.
0: The Doctrine of Regeneration. Look at the Wesleys. Look what they had to face for a moment. and. My dear, Whitfield, what was it? Everybody believed they were Christian, thoroughly Christian. Why? They were baptized as infants, brought into the covenant. They were confirmed. They lived like devils. Regeneration was traded for a type of creedalism that was given authority by the religious leaders of the day. And then here comes the Wesleys. No, it is not right with your soul. You are not born again. There is no evidence of spiritual life. Examine yourself. Test yourself if you are in the faith. Make your calling and election sure. Ye must be born again here in America, because of the last several years, several decades of evangelism, the idea of born again is totally lost. It only means that at one time, in a crusade, you made a decision and you think you were sincere. But there's no evidence of a supernatural recreating work of the Holy Spirit in your life. If any man, not if some men, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. And now, it's the same today. What do we face? I'll tell you what we face. It's not a sort of infant baptism necessarily, most of the time. It's not a high church confirmation by an ecclesiastical authority. What we face is the sinner's prayer. And I'm here to tell you, if there's anything I've declared war on, it's that. You say, Brother Paul, yes, in the same way that infant baptism, in my opinion, was the the golden calf of the Reformation. For the Baptists and the Evangelicals and everyone else who's followed them today, I'll tell you, that sinner's prayer has sent more people to hell than anything on the face of the earth. You say, how can you say such a thing? Go with me to Scripture and show me, please, I I would love you to stand up and tell me where anyone evangelized that way. The scripture does not say that Jesus Christ came to the nation of Israel and said that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Now who would like to ask me into their heart? I see that hand. It's not what it says. He said, repent and believe the gospel. How men today are trusting in the fact that at least one time in their life they prayed a prayer and someone told them they were saved because they were sincere enough. And so in their salvation, if you ask them, are you saved? They do not say, yes, I am because I'm looking unto Jesus and there is mighty evidence giving me assurance of being born again. No! They say, one time in my life I prayed a prayer. And they live like Devils! But they prayed a prayer. And some of them... I heard of one evangelist who was coaxing a man to do that thing. find the man felt so uncomfortable, the evangelist said, Well, I'll tell you what, I'll pray to God for you. And if it's what you want to say to God, squeeze my hand. Behold the power of God! Decisionism. The idolatry of decisionism. Men think they are going to heaven because they have judged the sincerity of their own decision. When Paul came to the church in Corinth, he did not say to them, Look, you are not living like Christians, so let's go back to that one moment in your life and when you prayed that prayer and let's see if you were sincere. No, he said this, test yourselves, examine yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Because I want you to know, my friend, salvation is by faith alone. It is a work of God. It is a grace upon grace upon grace. But the evidence of conversion is not just your examination of your sincerity at the moment of your conversion. It is the ongoing fruit in your life. It is the ongoing fruit in your life. Oh, my dear friend, look what we've done. Is it a tree known by its fruit? What, 60, 70% of America thinks it's converted, born again? We kill how many thousands of babies a day? We're hated around the world for our immorality, yet we're Christian? And I lay this squarely to blame at the feet of the preacher.
1: tonight to share with you the message of Paul Washer, but I just thought that in a pulpit that is often critical of everything that we see around us in the denominations, I would share with you a voice that stayed within the Baptist denomination that is crying out against it and give you the idea that there is a remnant everywhere, a remnant that inherently knows something is wrong with what we see, and they are craving more. They're crying out for more. They're not rejecting everything their parents gave them. They're not saying everything's wrong. They're saying, "When I look around. I do not see what Jesus described. And I hunger and thirst for righteousness. I'm going to, for two more minutes, tell you how we got where we are. And then the rest of our time will be how we get out of where we are. In 1935, a man named Billy Sunday died. But he preached from the 1880s until his death. Billy Sunday was famous as a baseball player. How the church loves to take athletes and lift them up as spiritual heroes. He was frustrated with the lack of simplicity in the message of the gospel. He felt like it was wrong to have people travail and tarry at an altar until they felt something. He felt like it needed to be simplified. So he is the inventor of a three-step process. A sermon that demands a response. It goes something like this. God will help us in this life and He will give us heaven in the next. And you can't do anything to move His heart in that regard. You simply rely upon Him for it. Then you pray a salvation prayer and fill out a decision card. He has no responsibility to disciple you. He has no responsibility to see that the authentic work of God is going in your heart. If you filled out the salvation card, you are stamped a USDA Christian. The third was, tell them to go to a church where they can straighten out the rest. And we have the birth of modern evangelism. Evangelism becomes, pray a prayer with somebody and they're saved and that's it. We don't see that in the Word. We don't see it even in our experiences working. In fact... There have been poll after poll done, and they say 87 to 94% of decisions in a crusade style are not walking with the Lord in the years to come. Admittedly not. Now, Paul got something wrong. It's actually, in 1990, the Gallup poll did a survey, and 74% of Americans claimed that they made a personal decision to follow Jesus. 74%. Of that 74%, 95% of them describe it as a born-again experience. But in the years to come, there's no fruit in their life. You have to wonder if we're causing stillbirths. You have to wonder if the innovations that occurred in the 19th century of a no waiting, no counseling, no struggle. In fact, a, a quote from Billy Sunday, a direct quote, is a man can be converted without all of that fuss. You see how we get where we're at? Let's remove the work of the Holy Spirit. It's so messy. It would be so much more efficient. You remember our assembly line? Let's simplify salvation. It takes less skill. We don't need to counsel. We don't need to discern. We don't need to hear from God. We simply know what the promises of God are. So let's make it sequential steps. Everybody has less responsibility. The evangelist no longer has to see that somebody walks with God, and the pastor no longer has to see them saved. It's like an assembly line. And then we can get a generic, low-cost product. And friends, the thing that hurts the most is that this assembly line Christianity is a low-cost product. Grace has become greasy and cheap. Jesus who is ultimate everything is now simply somebody that you invite into your heart as one of many priorities in your life. You invite him to come be a part of your life rather than surrendering your whole life to him. And there's no cost in it. There's there's absolutely no cost in it. And yet Jesus teaches us if any man if any man, not some men if any man would come after me He must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So I ask you, where is the denial of self? Where is the sacrifice in the gospel today? Mm -hmm. We have the most comfortable lives in history. Mm -hmm. We're convinced that the Great Commission is for anybody but us. We've talked about the problem long enough. Let me talk to you about solutions. As most things, I believe that God in the 39 books of the Old Testament laid a foundation for us. And in that foundation, we move to the second floor of the building in the Newer Testament that takes us even to new heights, but never departs from the original foundation. So Adam, Enoch, Noah, these men walked with God. They walked with God. They didn't take a step with God. They did not make a decision at an altar for God. Their life was described... As a walking with God. Psalm 1, blessed is the man who does not walk in the way of the wicked. Right? Your relationship with the Lord was never described by the Hebrew people as something that simply was a one-time event. It was a lifelong walking process. Look, Joy's going to put a picture of some interstates here. Go one more, Joy. Salvation was not many paths that led to one God. It was that there were many paths everywhere, and only one path led to the Lord. And you were on any numerous paths, but you had to repent and walk in the way of the Lord. If you got out of that way, you did not arrive at the destination, friends. Listen to the way that the prophet Isaiah said this. Turn to Isaiah 30. We'll be in Isaiah 30, starting in verse 20. Tell me when you're there. I'm there. Although the Lord gives you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, your teachers will be hidden no more. With your own eyes you will see them. Whether you turn to the right or to the left, your ears will hear a voice behind you saying, This is the way. Walk in it. Have any of you had a personal conversation with God the Father that appeared to you in person? If so, I'd have to ask what form you saw because God said He is spirit. He said that in John 3. So how do you hear a voice behind you it is, has jesus showed up got off of that crucifix that a fifth of the world's population wears and decorates their house with did he show up and speak in your ear in a bodily form no he's seated at the right hand of the father so how do you hear a voice that says walk in this way it must be the ministering power of the holy spirit in you and you know what it's not a one-time decision it is a constant way that you're walking in. The Hebrews believed this so strongly. Listen to it. Isaiah is littered, or rather jeweled with it. Turn to Isaiah 35. In Isaiah 35, you'll see it in verse 8. And a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. The unclean will not journey on it. It will be for those who walk in that way. Not who believe this fact. Not who accepts this doctrine. But those who whose actions reflect their beliefs by walking in the way, having heard the voice of God and responded to it. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor will any ferocious beast get up on it. They will not be found there, but only the redeemed will walk there. Friends, this way, how about Isaiah 40? This will be one every New Testament Christian knows. Isaiah 40, start in verse 3 for me. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. The Hebrews saw this way as a a path that broadened and, and widened and deepened into something called a highway. And yes, Jesus said it was narrow, but it was something to be walked on. And most people were not walking in that way. They needed a personal revelation. This is perhaps why Jesus stood and said, I am the way, the truth and the life in John 14, 6. It's like saying of every way that you could walk in, every selfish thing you could do, mine is paved with sacrifice and you must follow me. A little bit later he said, the prince of this world is coming for me, but. The world must learn that I love the Father and do exactly what He commands. The way that we walk in takes us through gardens of Gethsemane. It takes us through the rejection of our families. It takes us through suffering to get to the glory that God has for those of us who will walk in that way. He said, but Eric, it sounds like you're preaching works. Prince, I wouldn't have known there was a way and I couldn't walk in that way. If the Holy Spirit were not given by the grace of God in my life to say, here it is, this is what I want you to do, and I'll empower you. I will clothe you with power from on high to walk in that way. Come on, in Acts 9, listen to how the early believers referred to this. Turn to Acts 9, we're going to be all over the word in the little bit of time that I have here. In Acts 9, here comes the second verse. The first verse. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found anyone who belonged to the way. The early church called themselves followers of the way. They felt like in Messiah, Yeshua, they had found the way in which you walk out the belief in Yahweh God. You know, we have these little bracelets you know that say like walk as Jesus walked and what would Jesus do and yet we still reduce our relationship with the Lord to a single moment in time when it's a relationship that lasts a lifetime friends when the Holy Spirit is a deposit guaranteeing what is to come when he's a seal of salvation understand he shows you the way and he tells you how to stay in it and he gives you the strength to stay in it if you listen to him You arrive at salvation. Romans 8 says, As many as are led by the Spirit are the sons of God. But what happens if you stiff arm the Spirit? What happens if your heart is seared like with a hot iron? What happens if you shipwreck your faith like Hymenaeus and Philetus? What happens if, like Demas, you love the world in return to it? Having simply started in the way does not guarantee that you finish in the way. Say, but he who began a good work in you will complete it. Yes, if you listen to him, he will bring it to completion. But friends, obedience has always been required. One of the problems with this walking with God is it is so difficult. How do you know when your journey is over? How do you know where you're at? It requires a relationship. Listen to the way Paul said this in Acts 19.9. Here comes 19.9. If you don't want to turn there, you'll have to trust me. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. By the time we get to Acts 24:14, listen to how Paul said it again, giving his own testimony. 24:14. however, I admit that I worship the God of our fathers as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. Do you know another way that you could translate sect? Cult is one. Of course, denomination is another. It's any segmentation of a larger body. He said, you don't understand. I am following the way of God as revealed in Christ Jesus. And these people simply see it as one division of Judaism, a sect or a denomination. But it's more than that. There is one way to walk with the Father. And it's obedience to His Spirit every day. Comparing every thought you have, Corinthians 10 says, with the knowledge of Christ and casting down thoughts that exalt themselves against that knowledge. A constant, constant relationship. No wonder we've tried to make it an assembly line. This means you would have to work it out with fear and trembling. You would have to have, as Romans eight sixteen says, His Spirit bear witness with your spirit that you're a son. You would have to ask Him, how am I doing, Father, and expect to hear something other than simply an encouragement and a party in the sky. It's almost as if his word would be useful for teaching, correcting, and rebuking, for training in righteousness because it was needed in every believer's life. It was not a 30-second decision once for all. Why don't we just go back to selling indulgences if we're going to believe this? My goodness. You know, or we could invent a purgatory doctrine, couldn't we? Then we could really extort the people. Well, you look at some of our end times theology and it's beginning to sound a lot more like a purgatory doctrine. Good Christians fly away when there's trouble. Bad Christians have got to suffer until they're good enough. Uh, I'm not here to teach end times tonight. I'm trying to say we should have a living, breathing relationship with God by way of His Spirit. These are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. He seeks them. And He only accepts those who worship in spirit and in truth. (laughs) <laughs> what men tend to do is we tend to make formulas, right? I got a phone call from a brother who is honest. It was a good phone call. I love these. It lets me know what's going through the hearts and minds of the people. He read to me Acts 2.38. I'm going to read it to you. In Acts 2.38, we see what is typically considered a tenet of the Pentecostal, especially United Pentecostal movement, Right? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you, your children, and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord God would call. And that is wonderful until you tell people, hey, you have to believe and be baptized in water, and then you have to receive the Holy Spirit and speak in other tongues or you're not saved. Let's just cover some problems with that. The Holy Spirit cannot be given to the world. Jesus said it. He said it in John 14. The Holy Spirit is only for a believer. So what must you be to receive the Holy Spirit? Let's, Let's move on. Baptism. This is an outward sign of something that has already happened to you inwardly. Can it save you? Of course not. Of course not. What's the problem with this formula? The problem is by the time you get to Acts 10, 44 through 47, we see them believe Peter's words. The Holy Spirit comes upon them. They speak in other tongues. And then you know what Peter says? Can anybody keep them from being baptized? What happened to our United Pentecostal formula? Look, if we're just totally honest, the Baptist church has a one-step formula. The United Pentecostal has a three-step formula, and they're all assembly lines. It is about a living, breathing relationship with the living God. And sometimes a man gets baptized in water because... That's what the Spirit has shown him and he's become obedient to. Sometimes he gets baptized in power from on high with the evidence of speaking in other tongues and hopefully all nine gifts moving in his life because the Spirit has brought him to a place of obedience in that area. You know, if you don't know, if you've been taught that it's wrong, if you're in the process of working those things out but you're trusting Jesus with everything that you have been told, It's pretty hard to disqualify you and why would we want to? Of course, if you view this as getting on a road with Jesus as the goal and having Him formed in you, being put on that road by the Spirit, having Him in you, guiding you the entire way, as long as you're being obedient to Him, He is testifying that you are His child. You're even His child when you're being disobedient. But there is a place where a man like David cried out, Oh Lord, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Because he knew that the Holy Spirit was everything. The seal, the mark of ownership. I'm trying to encourage us that it is not about a formula. It is about obedience. Can anybody quote Matthew 28? Hmm? By the time we get to the Great Commission, we're going to baptize people into the, the Father, into the Son, and into the Holy Spirit. Right? We're going to go forth into every nation. We're going to make disciples. And do you know what we're going to do with our disciples, Matthew 28, 20 says? We're going to teach them to obey. We're not going to teach them to pray a prayer. We're not going to teach them to recite a scripture. We're not going to teach them how to meet the minimum requirements for acceptance. We're going to teach them to obey the full revelation of the Father that they're baptized into. The full revelation of the Son that they're baptized into. The full power of the Spirit that they're baptized into. Or another way to say it is immersed into the reality of all that is God. They have to be obedient. Paul said this in Romans 1. By the fifth verse too, he said that he had received grace and apostleship. To call people from among the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. This was never about simply praying a prayer. It was about the power of God coming into your life to do what you had already found out you couldn't do. You couldn't stop sinning. You were a slave. You couldn't save yourself and God didn't have to save you. But as an act of grace, He has mightily saved you. And now you walk in that salvation. In John 5, we see an example of a man at a pool, right? He he wants to get healed. He he can't get down to the water fast enough, right? There's a lot of people at the pool of Siloam and apparently an angel stirring the waters. Do, do you all know the story? Yes. Right? Angel stirring the waters, but he cannot get there. He cannot save himself. Jesus asked him if he wants to get healed, right? What an amazing thing. Apparently some people like to glory in their infirmities and use them as a badge. <coughs> Y'all never met anybody that is looking to be a victim, have you? So Jesus did for him what he could not do. He said, stand up and walk, and he healed the man. Then you know what he told him to do? Carry your mat. Come on, friends. Salvation is more than a one or two or three-step process. It is a walk with God. you got to carry your mat. you got to carry your cross. You have to follow him wherever it would lead. The answer to his question is yes before you know the question. We sit and say, oh, well, I don't know if I can go to Iraq to shoot people there. When you fell in love with Jesus, you either promised Him your life and He owns it, or you're still the Lord of your life. Mm. We've accepted idolatry in the church and called it the church. People cannot give up a football game for a a service that glorifies Jesus. They can't stay late on a Wednesday night for a service where the power of God is moving because we have to get the children to bed. Of course, if it was a little league baseball game and the lights were on, we'd stay. This is not Christianity. That is not Christianity. It doesn't matter what the evangelists have called it. Look, I don't know how many millions of decisions for Christ were made in the 1990s. But I know that the statistics seem to bear out the fact that not one in ten has lasted. I know that, but when the power of God was revealed to this rebellious, pathetic sinner, Mm. it changed my life in such a way that everybody who knew me, every single person who knew me took note. This guy's been with Jesus. They thought I was crazy. They called me David Koresh. They, They said I was the wacko from Waco. Then they associated me with Jimmy Swaggart. They associated me with everything until it didn't wear off. And then I started to see my friends saved in wholesale fashion. I started to see the people who said they would never set foot in that crazy church, getting baptized with the Holy Ghost. And you know what? Setting foot in that church and the mission field and churches beyond it and starting churches. Because the kingdom is like leaven that works its way through the whole loaf. We do not need parlor tricks. We don't need this. We don't need uh, every head bowed, every eyes closed, raise a pinky. We don't need this. It's unbiblical, it's wrong, and we shouldn't accept it well good Eric we don't do that that's why we're here it's not enough to distinguish ourselves from other people by saying we don't do those things we need to walk in the way wherever it leads us you cannot look and say "Hey, we're we're a special church we're a remnant church because we are not like them that is not the measure of a Christian the measure of a Christian is how do you measure up to Christ that's the measure of a Christian So why even point it out? Why even talk about what's going on around us? We live in a decadent society. It is self-indulgent in every possible way, and we are called to be pure inside of it, unmixed with any other thing. And it creeps in on us. We think that we're good with God because we made a decision. We think we're good because there there was obedience 10 years ago in our life. This is not the test, friends. We're to examine ourselves ultimately the gospel is about new creation not new facts book of james says that demons believe in one god and shudder at his name the gospel is about a new creation second corinthians 5 17 says if any man is in christ any man this is the test if any man is in christ he is a new creation You can go study that in the Greek all day long and you know what it says? He is a new creation. That's what it says. We can't translate it away. We cannot find some group to explain it away. It's what it says. The test for being in Christ is not did I pray prayer. The test for being in Christ is not does my pastor like me. It's not do I go to church or do I tithe? I was given a testimony from somebody today that was green-lighted to sin in a church, absolutely given unlimited license for something that the Bible says don't. You have to wonder, is it because he attended church well and because he tithed? I mean, is that what we're looking for? Salvation and funds? have we reduced the church of the living God to an attendance organization and fishing for funds? Maybe this is why we don't walk in the kind of power that the early church did. You know, when you step into the missions round, one of the things that you noticed immediately is everywhere Christians are in the minority, everywhere it's not accepted, Devin, everywhere that it might cost you your life to be a Christian, they're different. Hmm. They are different than the guys that you meet in Circle K. They really are. They're different than the Starbucks church. They are different. You know what? They know what it is to hurt for the gospel. They know what it is to pray with power because they've given up everything and we've given up nothing. Come on, church. We have got to stand up. We've got to stand up. And so many of you have given sacrificially. So many of you have gone. I mean, more than 50% of our church has gone. And praise God, but it's not a one-time event. You may have knocked it out of the park in the first ten months of the year, but we're in a lifelong, relentless pursuit of the King of Kings. And if you're looking for the place to coast, you will never be happy with me because there is no coast in me because the Holy Ghost says, Press on. Press on. You don't stop. You don't rest on an accomplishment. It wasn't yours to rest on. No matter what you've done, you look at your master and you say, I'm only an unworthy servant. I'm only, I couldn't do any of this without you. In fact, I need more of you if I'm going to conquer the next task. I would remind us that the gospel is something that can be tested. 2 Corinthians, let's read that. 2 Corinthians 13. The gospel can be tested, friends. We say, well, God knows my heart. Do you know your heart? He does. He knows your heart well. Do you know it? The heart is deceitful beyond cure, Jeremiah said. Deceitful beyond cure but we're convinced we've accepted Jesus in our heart. Paul writing to the Corinthian church, and I said first, it's really in 2 Corinthians. He said in 2 Corinthians 13, you can get there, tell me when you're there. My pages are stuck together. 2 Corinthians 13, look at the fifth verse. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. Look at the next line. And I trust that you'll discover that we have not failed the test. Paul was confident that his life displayed Jesus. He was confident that Jesus' words about every tree is known by its fruit. How many of you are comfortable standing up in public saying, examine me? If you don't see Jesus, then don't believe me. If you don't see Jesus, then don't believe me. But Jesus said this. He said, do not believe me unless you see the work my father does. If you do see it, then believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. He said, do not believe me unless. How many of us grew up in a household where a father said something like, you know, do as I say and not as I do? God is just the opposite. He says, if you don't see it in me, then don't do it. Don't believe me. But if you see me do the work of the Father, then you better believe on the miracles themselves. He He told the Pharisees, you search the scriptures diligently, thinking that by them you have eternal life, and yet you refuse to come to me. Could it be that it would say the same thing to us about our precious doctrines? Oh, you think that by them you have eternal life? You can quote the Romans Road to Salvation. Fantastic. Does anybody know that you are actually born again because they can see it in your life? Or do you rely on the bumper sticker on your car? Is this the great witness of the church these days? Our bumper stickers and our Christian wear? Is this the great witness? You know, I don't know how many times I've told somebody, "Hey, man, I love that shirt, huh?" What? Oh, uh, oh, oh! Like it's not your shirt, is it? I mean, just tell me—it's not your, you're not a Christian, are you? Oh well, uh, I, I'm a Christian, but it's my cousin's shirt. It's my uh, my my wife bought me this. Yeah, well, you're shocked to be identified with it. Tell me, when did you fall in love with Jesus? What? You know, I stopped asking people, are you a Christian? I don't know how you do this. I don't do it anymore. I don't say, are you a Christian? I don't say, are you a believer? Are you a follower of Christ? I say, when did you fall head over heels in love with Jesus? When you get the perplexed look, I go, oh. I say, oh that's so mean. That's so mean. Who are you to say that? Who are you to say they belong to God if there's no evidence? What gave us the right to declare people saved if the Holy Ghost is not in them bearing witness that they're saved? Show me that in the Word. Where in the word do you see one man telling another man, hey, you are now saved because you prayed a prayer? You know who is the first to know it when you're saved? You. You'll be the first to know it. Because that terrible burden that Pilgrim's Progress writes about, John Bunyan wrote about, it falls off of your shoulders. For the first time in your life, you're on a road ready to face Apollyon. You know, this was the great classical work of the English literature, the most popular book outside of the Bible for 300 years, and today nobody reads it because it describes salvation as a lifelong process. It describes it as a journey, a journey that people didn't always complete. Don't you love these little security blanket doctrines that we have? If you had the power of the Holy Ghost in your life, you would never need somebody to raise up for you some fluffy doctrine that is a house of theological cards waiting to fall to assure you of your salvation. You know who's assured of their salvation? Those who are assured of their relationship with the king of the kings. Oh my. Acts 26.20 says something that I'm I'm probably going to have to read. Yeah. Is that okay? Can I read you a scripture? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't want to yell at you. I love you. I, I, I don't want you to get the idea I'm upset with you. I am a little upset, but not with you. Of course, if I'm not preaching to you, who would I be preaching to, right? I mean, why would the Lord show me a topic to preach on if we didn't need it, if it was for somebody else? Another great thing Charles Finney said is preachers preach about sin all day long, but they don't preach about your sin, so nobody's converted. You know, if I'm not upsetting you sometimes, then I'm sorry. I need to work harder. If we're not challenging you sometimes, then I'm sorry. We need to. I never set out to build a mega church. Jesus didn't have a mega church, he had a mini church. I never set out to attract as many followers as we could. The truth is, all that feels a little bit like a burden to me. You know what I want? Voracious, hungry Christians who will do anything that Jesus said, and I don't care what meant that. I want those who came to David at the at the Cape of Adullam. those who were distressed and indebted. They were the dregs of society, and they're come to to follow a king who's been anointed but is not not visibly in power. Of course, he took them and made mighty fighting men out of them. Come on, not many of us were noble. Not many of us were rich or of a high calling by the standards of this world, but he chose the lowly things to confound the wisdom of the wise. Why don't you hear this from the largest churches in the nation? They're too busy playing with Oprah. They're too busy blessing homosexual mayors. They're too busy doing whatever it takes to attract the largest crowd, and we should have no stomach for it at all. In any other century, this would have been run right out of the church. But today, we're so contaminated by the decadence around us that we don't even recognize what is so unholy among us. I don't want to be a little church picking on a big church. It's not my heart. I actually am super excited about the testimony of some of our largest churches. When they start in feed stores, when men of God risk everything and dare everything to follow the Lord, that's fantastic. But if in the generations to come they reduce it to an assembly line, then what the first generation fought for is lost in the second and third. Come on. A church can be an expensive family gravestone. I don't want that. I want with all of my heart for something that endures to make Jesus happy. You know, there are no successors in this church. In fact, this church is not pastored by a single individual. There are four elders in this church that share that responsibility equally. And one day, if one of us goes to see Jesus, the other three, the other three will pick right up. There's a board of overseers that are in place. They act in a way that supports those elders, corrects them, rebukes them. They have the legal authority to remove any elder that has a lifetime commitment to this church. Remove them. You know why? No man is above correction. And I've seen too many that I, I thought were invincible for 20 years fall away. And it ought not be so. Because when they fall after such a long time, they usually drag many with them. Are you in uh, Acts 26? I'm not. Acts 26. Uh, let's start in 19. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. First to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem, and in all Judea. Isn't that interesting? Damascus, Jerusalem, Judea, and to the Gentiles. It's almost like he heard those words of of Jesus where he said, uh, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. It's almost like he simply responded to what he heard Jesus say. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and... What's that next word? Prove. Prove their repentance by their deeds. Where is that being proclaimed today? You're a Christian? <laughs> then we should see it in your life. Everybody claims to be a Christian in our nation. 74% say they made a personal commitment to follow Jesus. Personal commitment. 95% of those say that they were born again. Can it be seen in their deeds? When we love wickedness on Friday night? On Saturday, we love laziness. Or on Sunday, we're supposed to be in holiness. I don't think it'll work that way. I don't think we can spend six days doing everything God disapproves of and suddenly become a saint. Did you know that the word saint means holy? Hagios in the Greek. Hodesh in Hebrew. It means holy. Come on. Without holiness, Paul said, no one will see the Lord. But we say if you pray the prayer, you see the Lord. Let's go to Romans 8, and I'm going to wind our message down because you've heard me rant enough. What is in you, the anointing that is in you, is enough. If you're simply listening to the the Word of the Holy Spirit in your life, it is enough. If you're reading His written Scripture and the Spirit in you is testifying and teaching you, it is enough. You should not need me to feed you intravenously the Word of God. You know what you should need? You should need every once in a while someone to spur you on to holiness. Someone to agree with you that you are called to do amazing things. That Ephesians 2 says God prepared for you in advance works to do. And that Ephesians 4 teaches it's our job to help prepare you. Not to run your life. Not to declare you saved or unsaved or any of those things. You know, I'm disgusted with a pastor that will not call out sin not call out sin in their own congregation, not call out sin among each other. It's kind of a professional courtesy. We simply don't do that. Why? Jesus did it. John the Baptist did it. Mm -hmm. Paul wrote, rebuke an elder publicly. But we say, no, 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 we don't ever do that. Right? No reason to make enemies. The world has already declared war on the church of Jesus Christ. It already has. The death warrants have already been issued. Their leader, the spirit of disobedience that Ephesians 2 talks about, their leader comes to steal from you, Amen. to kill you and to destroy you. Why do you want to make peace? Amen. I, I, I'm out to see people converted, people changed, people to fall in love with the Lord. And shame on us if we give them a weak, watered-down, dead version simply because we're too pansy, too, too dainty-wristed, to stand up for Jesus in the way that Christians have throughout the centuries. If for the first four centuries martyrdom was the expectation, they didn't worry about saving their life. Why do we? Why do we? Are we better than them? Is that what it is? We're just more entitled than them, aren't we? Look, a bunch of you belong to a a political party that is prided on being conservative, right? And And you hate an entitlement that is taking over our nation, but religiously are we the most entitled people on the planet? Oh, yeah, we want all the blessings of heaven. We don't want to do any of the work. Maybe the Chinese Christians will do it. Hmm. Maybe the Indians will do it, you know? I mean, they're not used to heaven very much anyway. It's kind of more fitting, right? We'll stay in our wealth and build bigger (coughs) barns. Guys, we are the rich young rulers that Jesus was speaking about. We really are. We're the ones that he would look right at and say, your wealth has become idolatrous. Sell it all and follow me. By the way, he said sell it all then follow me. In other words, it was a requirement. You take commentary after commentary and all of them will say, this is speaking to anybody but you, whoever bought this commentary. Mm-hmm. Right. We want an insulation from the fierceness of the gospel because it's dangerous mm-hmm. and scary and unpredictable, right? Who would have ever expected, based on reading the 39 books of the Old Testament, that Jesus would spit a loogie in the mud and make an eyeball? Who would have ever guessed that? I mean, you would neck. He was amazing. And you know what? He called us to greater things than that. He put His Spirit in us so that He could multiply His work through us. I told you to go to Romans 8, right? So here comes Romans 8, starting in verse 12. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. How did He address them in verse 12? Brothers. He's writing to the church at Rome. And He tells them if they live according to the sinful nature, they'll die. Apparently, Mr. Paul didn't get the note, you know, out of uh, Dallas Theological or wherever that is being taught. Apparently, he didn't get the note. Even Christians who submit to the sinful nature and will not follow the leading of the Spirit, they die. The inference here is a spiritual death, not a natural one. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. He is writing this to Christians. You show me a parable that Jesus taught and you do your very best to explain to me why the parable relates to the world and not to us. And I'll tell you that everybody he was speaking to considered themselves an adopted son of God whose name was written in the book of life. See, we're convinced that the word is true but it's not speaking to us personally. When you get this kind of revelation, we spoke about the fear of the Lord today. The fear of the Lord, the reverence, the holy honor that is due him falls upon you you start to examine how you're living your life, is it selfish or is it selfless? Is it outward focused or is it inwardly dominated by self? Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. Let's remove everything else. There's only a supernatural element now. Your slate's clean. You can only point to things that you know that the Holy Ghost showed you and you're obedient to. How long does that last? Isn't that frightening? One of the board of overseers, Wade Sutherland, he preached here. Is the most Wade Wade is is I'm just being very honest. He's the epitome of integrity. Anybody that knows Wade, I mean, Wade has difficulty. If you ask Wade to say something, you know, just tell me something about the devil, Wade. Something bad. He'd say, "Well, he keeps busy." You know, I mean, Wade's not (laughs) capable of slandering someone. It, it, It cannot happen. Wade said when he looked at the things that were on his list in a week and he realized that everything he put on his to-do list was firmly within his ability, he said, I'm not living the supernatural life that God has called me to. Mm. Oh my God, it was crushing to me. I was in that moment where I'm sitting there going, if Wade says that, where does that leave me? You know? I I, I mean, I'm just being honest. Our lives are supposed to be defined by the supernatural work but if you've been taught it doesn't exist, it ceased. What a ridiculous joke. It only ceased by the people who believe it ceased. If you've been taught it ceased, if you've been told only a special holy few, you know, whoever's bigger than you, right? Spell my name with a big I and you with a little you. Mr. Exalted behind the pulpit on the stage, he's the great man of faith, but you, you little minion, right? Is it just me or our stages getting taller through the years? You know in the first century they dug a hole? Did you know they preached from a hole in the ground in synagogues? Because the man who was sharing had to be the most humble in the room. They got that from Moses, who was the leader of the whole nation, but God declared to be the most humble man on the planet. Never figured out how he wrote that in Deuteronomy. You know, but. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Papa, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are God's children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in His sufferings, in order that we may also share in His glory. Fellowship of suffering is not something that anyone talks about, but I want to tell you the truth. When you spend three days in the rain with your friends in Honduras, when you feel like you are about to starve to death or perish from no water and a buddy knocks down a coconut you all share it, there's a fellowship that occurs there. You're closer for life. When you're standing at a place where everybody runs but somebody stands beside you, you're friends for life. I want to be friends with Jesus for life and there's a fellowship that comes from bearing suffering because of His name. Your friends and family are giving you a hard time? They always have to real followers of Jesus, always. Jesus' own mother set out in the book of Mark, thanking Him to be out of His mind. In John 7, Jesus' own brothers were lost. And they wanted Him to do what they wanted Him to do at the Feast of Tabernacles, and He refused to listen to them. As it's always been this way. Matthew and I were no longer welcomed in our own homes when we got spirit-filled, right? It's just too scary. Of course, later, there was revival in those very same home. <coughs> It always has cost the people of God something to follow Him. Always, if it didn't, you wouldn't be the people of God. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. I don't know how that sets with your papal view, but for me, that's a major indictment. Woe to you when all men think well of you. Guys, we want to impress one person. We want to impress our Father. That's done by imitating His Son who no matter what the crushing weight was on him, said things like, you tell that fox I will press on today and tomorrow. On the third day i reach my goal. There's only so many hours of daylight in which a man can work. Night comes when no man can work. He was under a Holy Ghost timetable. Do you really think you're not? How many years have we wasted already? I said, let's start being obedient to what he has already showed us. And then he will show us more. We sit and pray for the will of God, decade upon decade, and we've never done anything that he showed us to do. I believe the more you get in motion, that's why the Hebrews called it a walk with God, the closer you'll feel to him. You'll feel his voice there. You've got to move somewhere. The most damnable thing that has ever happened is that's been taught as adding to the cross of Christ. That is the most ridiculous, stupid thing I've ever heard. You know, this is preaching from a medieval age where people thought sacraments saved them. I have not met a person since I left Lafayette, Louisiana, a pretty medieval place, <laughs> that thought sacraments saved you. I haven't. Not, not one. Most people understand at this point that faith is what saves you. I don't think we need to continually teach do nothing, only believe. Belief will produce action. It will produce action. Do something to honor your king. And as you do it, see if he doesn't direct you in your way. It's a walk with God, not an assembly Let's pray together. Now stand up. You know what else? We're Christians. Let's get all the way weird. Hold hands. Someday. I-